Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. It's again listening to yourself. Do I really love this? And do I love it enough where I'm going to get through it knowing I'm going to get my ass kicked along the way? You know, uh, you, you. I'm not saying you just get your, that's the job, you just get your ass kicked, but it's like to get to those little triumphs, to get to those wins, you're going to get your ass kicked. You're going to get beat up. You're going to write something you love and 100 people are going to tell you, oh, it's a piece of shit, you know. Um you, you know, but you'll find those victories, and that's kind of what you're fighting for. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you're having a great week. Thank you so much for all the support. I appreciate it so much. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. Today, part two of Mike Rowe. What an inspiration. This guy has had quite a career, and you're going to find out so much more and learn so much more about the entertainment and comedy business today. Trust me, this guy is a wealth of information. He knows everybody. He's worked with everybody. And he has a lot of the answers to the questions that we ask about the comedy business. And when I think about Mike Rowe, I think about a guy who always created these wonderful relationships throughout his career as a stand-up comic. A guy who started doing comedy in his teenage years and kept going and going and going and pushing himself. And as he pushed himself... He would master the art of what he did, and then as he was finishing the mastery of one area of the comedy business, he would launch to the next. He would master stand-up and get to the point where he felt that he was comfortable and could compete in the New York comedy scene, and then he started writing and writing jokes, and he didn't write jokes for shitty shows. He wrote jokes for the best. He shot for the moon instead of shooting for the ground and SNL was his first stop writing and he did a great job there and he figured out how to write jokes for weekend update and write jokes for sketch 
And as he was mastering that, he realized that he could write for other shows that were longer form scripted shows. And then he went to other big people to get those jobs and got them like Martin Short, George Clooney, Ted Danson, and Eddie Murphy. Again, show me who you're with and I'll show you who you are. It's funny, I think back to those early episodes that I used to do with Jay Moore on his podcast, More Sports, and we used to talk about that all the time, the relationships and how you're aligned with people and how it moves you forward. And with Mike, that's what he did. And then he mastered that area. And then when he worked with Eddie Murphy on the PJs, which was animation, he segued then into the animation area and worked on such shows as Family Guy and Futurama with two of the greatest showrunners in animation in history, Seth MacFarlane and Matt Groening. Can you do any better than that? And then he went on to create and run his own shows. Just it's a, it keeps going and going and going. The cycle of an artist who grows at every level, takes risks, moves out of their comfort zone, and moves forward to other areas of the business that they feel they can master based on the success in their past areas of the business. They apply the same formulas like Mike did to the new areas of the business. So stand-up applied to writing for Weekend Update. Weekend Update applied to writing for sketches. The sketches applied to writing for long-form sketches like Martin Short. And then he... And then he was able to figure out how to write for live action with George Clooney and Ted Danson. And then he figured out how to write that kind of format, but for animation. And then through animation, he ended up meeting some of the greatest people in the business. And then he had the confidence to run his own shows and create his own shows. That's the path. The path is through repetition, more repetition, working hard, working smart, figuring out how to navigate, creating great relationships, and moving forward. And now he's written a book, and you can tell what kind of great relationships he has by the names on the back cover and the quotes endorsing the book, including the front of the book with a hilarious quote and endorsement from one of the greatest geniuses of our time in the comedy business, Larry David. So if you can figure out how to create that situation where you seamlessly move from one thing to the other, out of your comfort zone, into another mastery, back in again, out again, and keep going, the journey continues in an extraordinary way that can only benefit and heighten any part of your career. And if you can figure that out, I can guarantee you, you'll have the possibility of the kind of career that Mike Rowe has. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. One of the things about you that's so cool that I love talking to you and I think the audience will really find special is the fact that now you're finding in comedy writing that there's another transition you can make, which is from live action to animation. So how do you make the jump writing from live action to animation knowing that animation is a whole different animal well uh in a way it's not vastly different the process is certainly different but story structure you know just the key elements of of a script are basically the same you think that the elements of family guy well family guy is the same as the elements of everybody loves raymond no no Family Guy is a different thing. Family Guy is really just a joke show. It's just a joke, <laughs> joke box, you know. So that's different. We're we're Futurama. And I was there for most of the run of that. At its core, I used to represent John DiMaggio, the voice of Bender. Yeah, John is fantastic. And but Futurama at its core was it was about those characters and liking those characters and and really doing emotional things with their stories. The the biggest difference is you have this huge this much bigger canvas of, you know, we're, we're, we can go on any planet or create any universe we want. We can have anything happen because we're in animation where there's, you know, there's, there's the, the budget is the same, no matter what, what planets you blow up, you know, I always felt like Futurama, you can please argue with me and tell me I'm wrong. If you look at Matt Groening, you look at the Simpsons, multiple characters got to be really funny. And I always felt on Futurama, there was a heavy, heavy emphasis on Bender to come in and like be the Michael Richards of the show. Am I wrong? Um, there were episodes like that, for sure. And because he was such a much more of the obviously funny, bigger, louder character, it may feel like that he was driving a lot of the episodes. And I know when I was writing episodes, I feel like well, I want to write a Bender episode because it's more fun, you know. In fact, uh, Futurama just sold to uh, um, Disney Plus, and now all of a sudden online, I'm finding like one of my episodes. Everybody's screaming about it that it's transphobic, and I'm like, "What the hell's going on? What?" Um, it it was uh, Bender wanted to be in the bending Olympics, but realized he he couldn't go up against the the men robots so he got a sex change operation to become a woman a woman and be in the woman olympics um and so so there's there's different people online protesting like that episode should be included in the package it's like, this is so exciting you're the first person i've ever interviewed that's about to get canceled <laughs> um first of all right it's a cartoon it was 20 whatever years ago and it's a robot i mean so you think the writing is the same for regular live action and animation. You don't make any adjustments? What about the writer's room? 
the I I the part I like the most is you don't have to deal with actors. Uh, also, uh, writing animation and getting those episodes produced takes so much more time. It's much more labor intensive. That when you do like a multicam sitcom, a three camera sitcom, there's a run through at least almost every day or every other day. So you're kind of at least a lot of shows I worked on, you're almost like rewriting the show every two days. Animation, you don't have time for that. You you kind of do the table read, you do a round of notes, and then you do the rewrites, and that's it. You know, so and, and then you don't have to be on the stage, you don't have to deal with actors, you know, and that part I like also. But I just like the 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 canvas of that compared to multicam. Why do writers rooms unanimated shows seem like they stay together for what seems like eternity and on live action shows there seems to always be conflict and people leave and come and go am i wrong about that right maybe there's less stress because i did a multicam a couple years ago and I hadn't done them in a long time. I go way back to the nanny, coach, Becker, you know, like those. And I, I didn't love it, but it was okay. And then when I did, I did, was I was on Two Broke Girls, and I just, and maybe I was spoiled because I was an animation, but it was such a stressful, toxic, you know, constantly rewriting the show. You never know where you stood, and everything was always in flux and. I just did not, I could not find a handle on it. And it was so stressful. Uh, I, I mean, I just didn't want to be in the business anymore. It was one of those kind of things. What advice do you have for somebody who gets a job? It's like, appears like it's a dream job. The money's great. But there's one person there that just brings it all down. How do you navigate and make your experience great or do you feel it's impossible to navigate through a situation like that and you just have to put everything aside and just forge forward um i wish there was like sort of one blanket answer to that because it's just really about the individual and what they can handle and who they are um it, part of it is trying and learning as best you can to not take it personally to let it roll off your back um it you got to say to yourself it's not my fault uh, uh, at least when i get in those situations because i'll be like i was just on a show two months ago and i was like the star of the room how could i not suddenly know what i'm not know what i'm doing how could i suddenly not be a good writer something there's some elements that i can't wrangle to make it right you know so you it's an opportunity to either figure out how to navigate that see what you can learn from that you know if, you, if you're feeling anxiety and that sort of stuff then go all right this is a very anxious situation it's a, it's a learning tool then of like okay how can i learn to understand and work with my anxiety so i won't have to deal with it in other situations it, so it's 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 such a complex thing, um, and a lo and sometimes it's just impossible. You you at some point say, well, I just have to figure out how to not be here. So it's, in your opinion, you don't recommend 
saying to the person who's the problem on a private moment, hey, listen, you have 10 or 15 minutes sometime this week when we can sit down outside of the office here and talk and and then approach that person with what's bothering you, what works best for you and other writers? Um, I don't think I would recommend going to the person running the show to say, I think... I think you should adapt your attitude a little bit because most of the time the person doesn't necessarily really know they're doing that. And it's also part of who they are. It's also probably their comfort zone in some way to be that person. And the other thing too is if other people seem to be functioning okay in the room, then you, then you really can't do it. You know, if if the toxic behavior is triggering something in you and not everybody, then you there's nothing you can do. There's no conversation you could have. Uh, I worked on a show that was not going well. And uh, he said, you know, why don't you come in early before everybody and spend time with the script? And then, you know, put, you know, have jokes ready as we go, maybe give you a head start. So there was a little bit of a conversation. But as an example of how that is kind of futile is then, uh, so I got in early, scribbled in jokes, and I go, okay, I'm, I'm trying to find the groove here. And then we start doing a rewrite, and then now I have jokes, and suddenly I'm participating more. And I'm like, okay, and then, uh, uh, and I have my little scribblings. So he goes to the church and doesn't know his wife is there. And it's well, I got a joke in, you know, and then going through the pages, and I'm like, okay, I'm, this is way in, this is way in. And then end of the night, he calls me in his office. I'm like, okay, yeah, see, it's. A, he goes, so what were you doing in there? I go, yeah, I felt like it was trying uh, to groove a little bit. And he goes, he goes, yeah, but you were you were reading your jokes off the page. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you got to think them up as you go. You we're not like in a business meeting. You can't just read the jokes from the. I'm like, what they got in? What difference to? And that's the moment where it's like, okay, the wall's down, and then I, I just got to survive it, you know. So, you know, I wish I had the answer of like, how do you, how do you make it a positive? You know, how do you, you know, it, it, it won't be the, you know, my, a lot of writers, it's like, well, if I don't do well here, does that follow me around for my career? Well, that was, you know, 20 years ago, and I've been working steadily. So, um, in some ways, the way to look at it as a positive is like, you know, maybe that means you have a very specific voice, you know, and it's just not jiving with the room. You know, you're, you're maybe not to say people are hacked that can fit in any room, but it's like maybe you're a little bit more of an individual, you know, that means maybe explore something that's a little more like maybe you're a filmmaker, you know, or maybe you just need to be on the right show, but you know it there's just a lot of things to figure out you know when that happens uh it's just the advice is try not to panic it won't be the end of your career try to learn from it and try to work it out and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out you know now i always find i don't want to be discouraging to artists but i always find that it's very very rare when somebody turns things around in a writer's room. Like it's very, very challenging to turn a room around that's against you 
or that were the showrunners against you. It's almost next to impossible. Yeah. So your advice is just to put your head down and, and do more work and and go forward, or is your advice to seek out advice from other people who've gone through it and how they should do it? Or I looked at it eventually as like working out with weights. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's an impossible situation, so I'm going to fight my way through it as much as I can. It's going to suck and it's going to hurt, but it's like you still kind of keep bobbing and weaving because, you know, you can learn something of like maybe getting in a crack of it, you know, it, as you try to break your way through you. It's, it's a learning process of how to handle a room and how to figure it out, you know. So, yeah, it's like working out weights because it's a, a heavy, impossible situation. And so when you went about another thing that is a whole different muscle, like, like writing a book. So how do you decide you're going to write a book and what's the process of figuring out how to be as great at writing books as you are at writing sitcoms and animation? Well, I don't. The jury's still out on how great a book writer I am, that's for sure. Um, but a lot of times it's like, again, listening to yourself, listening to your instincts. For some reason, it just, I, something drew me into writing this book. A part of it was, first of all, part of it was like, like, holy shit, I'm burning three hours a night dicking around on the internet, doing nothing. What if I just found better productive reasons to, you know, let me use that time more productively. I, it's empty calories just, you know, tooling around. So, and then I worked on a uh, animated show in Canada, in Nova Scotia. And I spent most of the time in the hotel room there. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start. And I actually started by pulling stories that I wrote on Facebook. I had some long stories that were kind of the the germ of some of these so i just went to facebook and started pulling those stories and then suddenly i had a little place to start from um i, I just I, a lot of these stories i always had would tell with friends and that sort of stuff so the stories were already in my head and i felt like this book can kind of help people who are thinking about getting into the business because it's really about what happens when you chase your wildest dreams you know what I mean? It's like, what what am I going to be up against? What are the kind of decisions I'm going to make? It, it, can I really do it? I, I, I'm i just a kid in a small town. How do I, you know? So if, if, if a young person in a small town who, you know, reads this and, and it helps them go for their dream, even if it's like, maybe I can be in the NBA or maybe I can, you know, that it's just an example of my journey of like the kind of crap you go through but what it takes to be successful how much you're up against and how to fight through all the rejection you know because the the sad thing is it's not sad but there's people that are just kind of born with this ability and this capacity where they show up they come to hollywood and suddenly they're the golden child and they sell two screenplays and they, and they just do it and they're there but i'm like most where it's just it's blood, sweat, and tears, and crying, and vomiting, and writing, and rewriting, and starting over, and just, uh, and it's it's all hard work. That's the majority of all of it. It's just really hard work, and that's the only thing that's, unless you have some gift, you know. But the good part, if you can find some success with hard work, it's much more satisfying 
because it's all you. It's everything. It's your hard work that got you where you are, you know. Um, so that's kind of the, the gist of the book. And I felt like, you know, it's, I also heard that, like, you know, when you die, your stories die with you. <laughs> so I was like, oh, let me put them away somewhere so in case somebody's interested, you know. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. Tell me something that comes to mind. Hmm. Larry David. The guy that bought your sweatshirt. No. <laughs> Larry's been very supportive, and he came back to the New York clubs when I started, and we got to know each other a little bit. And he was one of the first people ever to read a script that I wrote. And I, I think I still have the phone message somewhere from the, the early 80s of like, it's a, it's a good script. It's a pretty, it's good. It's a good script. I like it. Yeah, it's good. Um, and, you know, I still see, see Larry every once in a while. And, uh, but yeah, Larry's great. Lauren Michaels. I, and uh, again, this was my thinking as a kid. And, and you know, what? there's an innocence when you're a kid where you think you can kind of do anything and everything is possible, right? And I always even kind of say this in the book of like, we kind of need to hold on to that. To kind of, it helps us move ahead. Just think like a kid of like, nothing's impossible and don't worry about rejection. Because after I won a stand-up comment contest in Hartford and Saturday Night Live was, you know, kind of at its peak at the second season, I figured, well, I can just be on that show, right? So I send a letter to Lauren Michaels at SNL. Like an idiot, you know, like, and I probably tried to be funny. I think I said, you know, here's, I put in a dollar just to make sure you... You know, pay, you know, like just trying to be funny. But I got back a, it was a form letter from Lauren Michaels saying, you know, we, we have all our cast members we need right now. Like I'm thinking like, well, that's all you do. That, then they'll send a limo to your house and put you on the show on Saturday night. You know, like, what? but I got the, a letter from him and it was like, well, we have all our cast member needs right now, but should something change? And, and I'm thinking like, well, well, Chevy left. Belushi, I didn't get a call when he left. You know, it's been 40 years. Did, did he, should I send him another letter? You know. So, but again, that innocence is great. And I, I try to, I do that to this day. You know. Ray Romano. Ray, why? Deborah. <laughs> Everybody has a Ray impression. Uh, I was with Ray uh, on his first Tonight Show. Uh, and that was really exciting. Uh, he was, in fact, uh, 
when Ray, Ray was still living in New York and he came to LA to do the show and we went out the night before and we go to a strip club. And I've like have, I've been living in LA and I haven't been to a strip club and Ray's like just curious. Whose idea was it? That's a good question. I don't remember. And it was just, it was a horrifying thing. We went in and it's like, uh, wait, wait, 20 bucks, man, for the, for the doorman. What do you mean? You just, uh, yeah, 20 bucks. And then we're like handing him, we sit down and the guy's like, they put down two sodas, $20 for the sodas. And like there was a guy with a broom handle, like whacking the back of the chairs, move your chairs up. Like what the, where are we? What, you know, it was just this kind of horrifying experience. And uh, so one day I was at my family, we, we were driving back, we were at Laguna Beach for like a week and we're driving back and Ray's on a podcast. And with my family and Ray goes, I was with Mike Rowe and we, we go to the strip club in the middle of the thing. I'm like, mm. <laughs> Seth McFarlane. Uh, Seth was great. Uh, he's a little mercurial. Uh, but he is, he, he's an example of uh, a genius. Um, I, I, I was on that show for about a year and it, that was an example of where I, it was good and I liked it and, and it was a lot of fun, but I didn't click as well on that show as I did with Futurama. So then when Futurama came back again, I kind of segued from there back to Futurama. I just felt more at home with the Harvard nerds, you know, Matt Groening. Matt has been a inspiration to me and he's been so supportive and he, you know, I spent seven seasons, I think, at Futurama and we really kind of hit it off because I was, I was really the less nerdiest of the guys in the room. Matt is a nerd, but the other guys were like science, math, Harvard nerds. And I was like, I would talk to Matt about Laurel and Hardy and, you know, the Marx Brothers and that sort of stuff. So I, I was kind of his kindred spirit in that way. Um, I mean, like for the Futurama room, the guys are so smart that like when there was, you know, like conversations in most writers rooms, they would talk about who, what parties were going on and who wasn't invited and who was dating who. Futurama, we would have long conversations about the perpetual motion machine. You know, diagrams and charts and, you know. Um, but Matt Matt was great. Eddie Murphy. Eddie, I, I wish I knew. You know what? This is, I don't know if I can tell the story, but. Uh, too, Ed, late. too late. Eddie Murphy uh, did this movie, the Dolomite movie from last year. Mm -hmm. And Odenkirk had a small part in it. And, uh, and the scene was. Uh, the Dolomite had these these sort of pimps and actors and stuff that did his movies. That was the, the characters. And Eddie Murphy came into the scene and Odenkirk was the movie distributor. And Eddie came in as Dolomite and it, his his character was like, you white motherfuckers, you know, the black man, he's throwing the N-word around, you know, and all that stuff because it was part of the vernacular back then. So they're, they're waiting for Eddie to get ready to go and see it. And the cast is at the table waiting to shoot. And Odenkirk says, uh, Mike, you want to run my lines for me? Can you do Eddie's part? And I'm in front of the cast and everything. I got the script. I'm like, um, <laughs> all right, you white, uh, white motherfucker. Uh, and I'm like saying the, and you, you know. Um, but I, you know, I hadn't seen Eddie in 40, 35 years before that. And I got to talk to him again after all these years and he was great and we caught up on some old stories and stuff like that so it was good to see him 
Paranormal Action Squad. <sighs> Paranormal Action Squad. It's an animated series on YouTube. One of the first YouTube read experimental series that they tried. You created that, right? I created it. Here's here's something that maybe people who are in this situation, the, there was a lot of learning here. So YouTube Red came to me and they sort of had this idea and they said, do you want to make this into a show? And I would recommend when you get an opportunity like that, you have to take it regardless of what you're up against. And I was up against a lot, right? So there was hardly any budget. I had no writers. Uh, the directors never... This was their first cartoon. The actors were YouTube influencers, so they weren't animation actors. So I had, I had nothing. You know, I had nothing to work with. But what I was, was your budget per show? I, I'm kind of making this up, but it may be like, you know, less than a hundred thousand or something. And a normal budget for an animated show, like uh, on... two million. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was the most fun I've had. Right. It was the most fun I had because it's a, it's a time where you you are forced to use everything you've ever learned, you know, and that's very valuable. And uh, the the but the biggest thing I learned is if you have people who are don't know what they're doing and don't know how to direct and you have no budget, so it doesn't look good. Uh People, people who are watching it don't know that you, you don't have the budget. You, they don't know you don't have a lot of writers helping you. They don't know any of that stuff, so they just expect it to look great. You can't start the cartoon on camera going, we, we didn't have any money for this, and we didn't have any time. Like, I had two days to write scripts, you know? So, uh, so people looked at it, and they go, did someone's kid make this cartoon? <laughs> um, but then, then suddenly, like some internet awards show up at my house for the cartoon. It was weird. And then, I, I ended up working on there was a show called Trailer Park Boys, live action that they wanted to make animated. And they saw the show and then hired me off of that show for the. But it's, it's, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, but the greatest thing, by the way, about that experience was, YouTube put in the money to advertise it all over LA, and it was a billboard painted on the side of a like a five story building. On Sunset Strip, so my show, my 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 billboard for that show was the size that was four stories high. So that was pretty exciting. Amazing. Martin Short. Uh, Martin Short had a talk show that I wrote on. Uh, here's a, here's the interesting thing. Martin Short is the best guest on a talk show. So somebody had the idea. Well, then why not make him a host? And that became sort of a problem because Martin Short is the funniest guy in the world. But as a host, you sort of have to be yourself where Martin Short loves getting lost in characters. So it was hard. I was there kind of in the beginning as the writing staff had to figure out how to, what's the best way to utilize him. He tried doing a monologue in the beginning that didn't work great. And we find he loves singing that sort of old school Tony Bennett style. So we just do every, every show in the beginning, instead of a monologue, we do a song. Um, but the cool thing, too, because I was a SCTV nerd, uh, he would bring people, his old friends from SCTV, to come on and be characters on the show. And Martin Short was so great that he would hang out with us, the writers, at lunchtime, and we would bring in whoever was, you know, we were having lunch with Edith Prickley or, you know, uh, Count Floyd. So it was fantastic. It was a fun, great gig. Whitney Cummings. Here's a story I shouldn't 
tell. I really shouldn't tell. Too late. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for this. But first of all, I wrote with her on the roast before she was, you know. She got the job on the roast writing, and she wrote a rap for Snoop Dogg, I believe, on the first roast she wrote on. And then she got the gig for the second roast. I remember because I was a part of that. I don't want to get into that story now. But And then they told her she couldn't do it. It was Larry the Cable Guy roast, but he didn't know her. And then she got the next roast, which was Joan Rivers. So you wrote with her the two years, I believe, she wrote her one year before right. she got on. She had a great joke. I think it was for Flavor Flav. Uh, Ice T is here. Uh, I would like to listen to your music, but I don't have a cassette player in my car. <laughs> um, she, she wrote great jokes for the African-American guests. Uh, she was a great writer, but she had sort of an issue... When she was in, in the writer's room, she just happened to, when she was writing, she would think out loud the whole time. Like we couldn't like, okay, uh, Bob Saget, Bob Saget, he had a, like a sitcom. So she would do the sitcom if the sitcom thing, maybe because if we do a joke about the kid, like she would keep talking and the writers, we're all trying to like, to the point of like one time we pretended we were rapping for the day and then, and then waited for her to leave and then we reconvened. <laughs> I don't know if you should have that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's my Whitney story. Paradise PD. Um, Paradise PD. Uh, the guys that created that show were uh, are Roger and Waco. Uh, Waco O'Gwen and Roger Black. And they brought me in to run an animated series they had called Brickleberry. Uh, they hadn't run a show before. They had sold a show. But I hadn't run a show before. So this was my first time running a show. So we all kind of learned together. So I, I, again, it was an example of you're given an opportunity to take everything you've ever learned and now it's the time to like bring it together. This is the test, like what it, so it was hard. And then I figured it out and by the end, I just feel like I, I really got a handle of like how to, how to run a room. It was like a trial and error, a lot of pain and anxiety and those guys are freaking out and executives like, it was weird because I was this was the second season in and I was brought in because the show is really filthy and dirty, nasty, and they didn't want that. And they thought I was going to go in and change it to the way they wanted. But they kept the creators in the room. So I feel like if they're going to be in the room and they're the voice of the show, because I feel like the success of any show is when you can get someone's voice in the show. If they're, if they're blueprint, if it's their point of view, that's kind of one of the big keys to success, I think, of a show. So... You know, I just figured this is their kid. I'm just going to take the way they do it and just learn how to better wrangle it and structure it and 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 make the characters become more like people. That was all I could do. So I I I, I figured it out. And then they sold another show, Paradise PD. It's kind of the same show, but now it was kind of sweet because now they're the showrunners, you know, and they're the stars of it and. The, like the room stars and so they brought me in for a couple seasons just to kind of be the 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 old guy in the room to kind of keep things going and just kind of be a consultant there you know but i felt a sense of pride though to see them you know know how to do it and be stars and but it was so stressful and we get such crazy notes when we're at prickleberry that when the phone would ring everybody would tense up and then what was funny when we're at paradise pd the phone had the same ringtone and they still had that same PTSD reaction of that, you know. So 
Yeah, and uh, in fact, uh, that the the third season premieres uh, this weekend or whatever this airs. But great, Sarah Silverman. Sarah and I have we were we were extremely close in the eighties. We spent a lot of time together, and she at times felt like a, a sister in a way. It's it, it's funny, I, you know. We've we've kind of gone our separate ways a little bit, and I still wish I. We kind of spent more time together, but we just kind of travel in different circles, you know. Um, but when I, I see her and go to lunch with her every once in a while, it's always great and sweet. And um, the first time I ever pitched a show was with her at Disney, you know, back in, who knows, when I first moved out here, you know. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Um. Well, probably the most visceral proud moment was winning the, M the Emmy and sort of the, the, the surge of excitement that came with that, you know, running down to the stage and, you know, and then the whole pomp and circumstance of that was the proudest. But boy, I, w I can't think of one, you know, there's just the, the kind of a field of a bunch of different little little medium and bigger proud moments i can't think of something that was like a turning point that you know like a huge big proud moment hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project i've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, this is kind of a, a learning thing of like, uh, sometimes I'd be on a show and then I would, you, you at some point you're in charge of writing your own episode. And on some shows you hand in a first draft and it's like, completely not in sync with the show and it's, it's an awful feeling you know so uh and that's always disappointing but then you need those moments to go okay is it me what went wrong you you really kind of buckle down and study like all right maybe it is something wrong let me examine what i'm doing it's it's like a it's like a thing to push you to to another level of like, I can't blame outside circumstances, you know. 
Was there a specific instance that happened? Uh, I was working on coach. And uh, I wrote an episode. With, uh, people don't know coach, but there was they, they lived in um, Minnesota. And then they, the team, he was a coach of a team, and they went to the pros in Florida. And I was writing an episode where they go back to visit the old place they used to live. And then Jerry Van Dyke played a character who was very frugal, and he found out he can get a free flight if he transported a kidney. <laughs> that was my pitch. And I said, you know, he's also excited about getting the old uh, um, funnel cakes he used to get. So the joke was he mixes up the kidney and the funnel cakes and the flight, and it's a whole thing. And it's a, kind of a darker way that that show goes. And I don't remember so much what the AA story was, but when we had a table read, there was sort of a mix-up. It was supposed to be a day off, so writers kind of made vacation plans, but then it's, they, they said, no, we're going we're gonna to do the table read, and it was my script. And the writers are the ones that kind of get the ball rolling. And I'm already, like, I wrote my draft, and the, the writers in the room liked it. They signed off on it, and this, is, this will work. So we, we go to the table read. There's a lot of writers who are not there. As we get there, uh, Craig T. Nelson and Jerry Van Dyke are like in a fist fight. Like they're screaming at each other. And they say that, well, they do that all the time. They're like idiot brothers or something. You know, they, so I'm like, yeah. So we're like, go to the table and they're, they're finishing their fight and they come in and it's already stressful. There's, there's no writers, my script with the funnel cakes and the kid. And, the, <laughs> and before that, Alan Kirschenbaum, who ran the show, Late Alan Kirschenbaum, who's one of the nicest guys who unfortunately took his own life. On the walk to the table read, he said, Oh, Mike, you should know too that today is your option day. So the option day <laughs> is when the head of the show decides whether or not you continue on with the show. <laughs> so all these forces are coming together. And table read starts, and the first page. No laughs. Usually you start to hear a little few titters and like, oh, second page, nothing. Third page, nothing. It's just death, page after page. I'm like, holy Christ. And then... Uh, but normally, in fairness, the writers are in the room laughing. That helps. So, that helps. So it was deadly. And I'm like walking back to the bungalow. I asked one of the actors, like, is this... This has happened before, right? He goes, oh yeah, like uh, six years ago. This, you know, <laughs> I'm like, holy crap. So Alan comes to my office, and I'm like, you know, he goes, yeah, uh, 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 Barry, uh, I forget who was the uh, Barry Kemp. He says Barry's not going to pick up your option. I go, I, well, yeah, it's obvious. And he goes, but the problem is we have no writers here, and we have to rewrite this from scratch tonight. I'm like, well, of course I'm going to do it with Alan. Alan has hired me on a bunch of shows, and he goes, "We're going to we're going to rewrite it." And we go it goes to the table tomorrow. And then we just buckled down and we're there till you know three in the morning. Wrote it, pasted it together, goes to the table the next day, and it does great. And then uh, Alan, unbeknownst to me, goes to Barry Kemp. He goes, "You should know that Mike and I did this a lot, and Mike did a lot of the heavy lifting." And Barry goes, "Okay, he could stay." So that's a that's a journey in just that situation that those are the kinds of things you can expect to 
go through in different forms. Yeah, but you could have walked and said, no, write it yourself. He fired me. But you didn't. You stuck with it. And it should be noted also that when you complete this script, even if you've got shared writing credit, you're going to put a, at least an extra ten grand in your pocket, too. Right. But the other thing that writers, as they get into writing on shows, it's a, it's a weird thing. Because every mm. script is really collaborative right almost like the room breaks the story right and then the writer is assigned that episode and he goes and the, just, they break the a and the b story yeah and they almost most shows just put it together like the the beats of the puzzle then you go home and you and you come back with an outline you know eight six ten pages depending on the show so then the room goes back and, and they go through the outline again and fix it and then uh and then you write the draft and then the room goes back and fixes it. But then it says written by in your name. So even executives to this day and, and people who are not in the room just assume that you're the guy that you went home, wrote it and handed it in. And here it is. So then it's it's your fault, good or bad. If it's good, then you wrote a good script. If it tanks, then you wrote a script that tanked. You know, that's that's a little bit of the frustrating part. Uh, before I ask my last question, how many times has it been when you start on a process where you have the A story, which is the primary story, and the B story, which is the secondary story? How often in your career has it happened when you start the week writing and then the B becomes so exciting that it turns into the A and the A turns into the B? You know what? It it doesn't happen often because usually the A story has a bunch more elements, including it's usually also, if it's a good A story, it's emotionally driven, you know, where the B story is usually more about the fun cutaway stuff. So if it's a good script, you, it, and I really think the best scripts have some emotion to them, and the A story has that. So it's, it's not likely they would flip, you know. Got it. Awesome. Last question. Hmm. What advice would you give to the young person starting out as a comic or wanting to be in the comedy business and how to navigate this crazy world and, and have the kind of long-term career that you've had? I, it's funny because I, I talk to young writers all the time. And again, I've said this, but it, it's, it's simple and I think it's the most important. If you are not obsessed with it. And if you're not driven to write almost every day, again, uh, I kind of recommend that they don't pursue it. So it's again, listening to yourself. Do I really love this? And do I love it enough where I'm gonna get through it knowing I'm gonna get my ass kicked along the way? You know, uh, you, you. I'm not saying you just get your, that's the job, you just get your ass kicked, but it's like to get to those little triumphs to get to those wins you're going to get your ass kicked you're going to get beat up you're going to write something you love and 100 people are going to tell you oh, it's a piece of shit you know um you, you know but you'll find those victories and that's kind of what you're fighting for you have to want it enough to to be able to go through that if you're if you're not that much of a junkie you know you're you're probably not going to get that far you know this was fantastic Thanks, Thank man. you, Mike. Everybody, check out Mike's book. It's a funny thing. Everywhere books are sold, processed, recycled, stolen on the streets, whatever it is, check it out. 
Thank um, you, man. This has been great. You should be very proud. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Fist bump? Word. All right. No, I appreciate no. it. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session. BarryKBB.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.